Hey, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Biz Books, where I speak to great authors about great books that they have written. My name is Gene Martz, and I'm speaking with Abby Donnelly today. Back in 2017, Abby published her book, Straight Talk About Planning Your Succession, a primer for CEOs. And uh, for those of you guys that are following us on Biz Books, I'm, I'm having a few conversations about succession planning because... Uh, the fact of the matter is, 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 you know, more than half of U.S. small business owners are over the age of 50, according to the Small Business Administration. And it's a big in impact on and a big thing on many of our minds. And um, Abby's got a lot of great insights as to why you would want to sell your business. This is a book not necessarily on the, the nuts and bolts of selling your business, but what's driving business owners to sell their businesses. So first of all, Abby, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. Well, I'm thrilled to be here as well, Gene. Uh, I think you do, you're doing your um, viewers a great service of providing them some insight into books that they can read and enjoy that fit their their needs. Yeah, you know, this series has been so much fun for me and I'm going to do it forever. It is just, um, I'm, I'm reading, Abby, like just like business books that I've I've always admired. And you know what it is? Uh, selfishly, it, it, uh, it, it pushes me into reading books on topics like succession planning that I should be reading anyway. And I always kind of blow it off. Um, but now because like you and I said like, okay, we're going to talk about this. I, you know, I buy your book, I read it and I learn and I get smarter. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Abby. Like, you know, what, you know, give me, give us your background and, and how you came to write this book. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So, um, my background, actually, by degree, I've got a bachelor's degree in math and a master's degree in statistics. And I started my career with Procter & Gamble in manufacturing and product supply and doing internal consulting work. And when I left there, I started my own consulting firm and I had a stint by myself. And then I partnered up with Sandler Training. And I did this kind of work actually within Sandler Training and also training sales professionals. And then I broke back out again in 2012, end of 2012, early 2013, to start what is the Leadership and Legacy Group today. And that, you know, what we really focus in on is working with business owners, primarily small and medium-sized uh, uh, companies, to help them develop their leaders for succession, mm. you know, in the CEO and the executive level. And then we also work with the owners to help them figure out what they're going to do in their next chapter. So today that means a lot because many of them will live a long time in healthy in retirement. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Obviously as the, you know, as the human lifespan has been increasing, I mean, we have had a bunch of baby boomers retire and, uh, and we'll get into this because a lot of times, as you mentioned in your book, there, there are people that just don't think about, what's after, you know, selling your business. And that's a big part of the decision to sell your business. Um, Abby, let, let's get into it a little bit. I, you know, I pulled out a bunch of things from your book that I thought uh, would be of interest to talk about. First of all, you reference another book, another author, Patrick Ungashik, I guess I'm, I'm pronouncing it. <laughs> okay. And you, you mentioned this because you, 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 you know, you pointed out in your book, he, he writes about something called the rolling 10. And um, I wonder if you can comment on what is the rolling 10 and why should we know what that phrase means? Yeah, so um, when I first heard Patrick Ungershik speak, I was mesmerized because he had such a deep understanding of the market and succession planning for owners. And the phrase that he coined, the rolling 10, 
where, you know, and I've, I've actually proven this out myself. So you talk to a business owner and you say, so when are you planning on exiting your business? And they typically say, eh, five to 10 years. Right. And you see them again in three or four years. And you say, so when are you planning to exit your business? And they say, eh, five to 10 years. <laughs> see them again, you know, three to five years later. And you say, so when are you planning on exiting your business? And they say, five to 10 years. And so the idea is that the concept is always top of mind, but the execution is usually five to 10 years out. Why is that a bad thing? Well, I think it, it's not always a bad thing for a younger owner. You know, when I did this, when I asked this question, because I traveled around and spoke to a lot of Vistage groups and, you know, other CEO peer groups, mm -hmm. and I would ask the same question. And what I found is that there would be um, CEOs that are in their 40s that would say five to 10 years. And there would be CEOs in their 70s that would say five to 10 years. And so I think, you know, whether this is good or bad is really dependent on what your contingency plans are for your business because you have a responsibility to your, your employees and your customers. But I also think it depends on, you know, what your own contingency plans and goals are. Right. So everything is five to 10 years out, you're never going to get there. And what I have seen in some situations is that when owners get into their late uh, 60s, 70s and 80s, and they're still, you know, without a an obvious succession plan, their employees start getting really nervous. Yeah. And wondering like what's going to happen in the business. And sometimes your best employees are the ones that are going to go find jobs somewhere else. And that's not a good situation for anyone except the best employees. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And I, you know, I was thinking about the the exact same thing. It sends such a wrong message out to your employees if you do say like, "Listen, I'm going to have a succession plan. I'm planning on getting out of here in ten years." Uh, you know, your your employees and maybe your, your your family members that might be in the business are making their plans around it. And if you're pushing it out and pushing it out and pushing it out, that has an impact on a, a morale impact, right, on everybody in your company. Well, and it's confusing, even if you've got a designated successor, if their roles aren't really clearly defined of what that next, you know, what that next role will be for the owner, then there's, there's confusion for everyone around, well, who's doing what and who should I be going to? And when is this, you know, this successor going to take over? Right. So it can be really tough. You name some, um, you give some stats early on in the book about business owners wanting to leave. You say that, you know, 42% of them say that maximizing their business value is the number one goal. And yet only 11% of the of, of owners in, in one study that you cite has e have even valued their business. <laughs> so can you talk to me a little bit about why that's such a, you know, such an issue? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think when business owners hear the word value my business, uh, they may have been exposed to valuations that are very expensive. Right. And the idea of spending $50,000 just to get a number, you know, theoretically about what my business is worth. Well, that's not a real good use of their resources, especially if they're going to be transitioning the business to a family member or a key employee. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the valuation in that context isn't that critical. But there are many, many ways to get a valuation number that would be absolutely useful for an internal sale, a relationship sale where it, you know, you're transitioning it to someone in the company. Um, but I think it just it's a step in the direction for many owners that make 
succession real. Mm. And if it makes it feel real and they're not ready yet, then what are they going to do with that information? Now they have to face the fact that, oh my gosh, succession might be coming sooner than I'm emotionally prepared for. Right. Um, you, you write about as well how um, there's one thing to come up with a strategy for building value in your business, but one of the biggest issues that a lot of your clients face is that they don't pay attention to that strategy. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so, I, you know, it's, it's <laughs> interesting. I believe that you're building your strategy, you have to build it, you know, through one or two lenses. You either have to have a strategy that is going to be effective for you to showcase it and market to an outside buyer mm. or to have a successor who's able to run and execute against that strategy. And if you're planning an internal sale and you have a successor that's not capable or not interested in um, executing against that strategy, you either need a new strategy or you need a new successor. And so, you know, the idea of figuring out what that strategy is going to be in alignment with the plan that you have for either an external sale to a third party or an internal sale is critically important. Okay. So, you know, we, we, we know that we're not valuing our businesses like we should be doing. Um, we know that we, uh, even if we come up with a strategy, uh, a lot of business owners have a, have a, a, you know, a hard time following that strategy as well. There are some other ugly truths that you mentioned in your <laughs> book, right? There are three of them. I can prompt yep. you unless you know them off the top of your head. Um, but I'd love you to talk a little bit about the ugly truths and just to help a little bit, no qualified buyer, right? Uh, your identity is deep in the business and there's uh, discomfort in the stress and uncertainty. So I'd love to go. And then there's the real ugly truth. So <laughs> let's first of all, talk about, I'd love to go through each of these, you know, because they're all really important. So there's no qualified buyer or assessor, no sale. What, what, what do you, why is that such an ugly truth? Well, you know, I think most of us, that own a business believe that our business is going to be very attractive to, mm. you know, we tend to overvalue what our business, you know, what the business is worth. And we tend to talk about our business in, in terms of what we think we can get for it, which is often much more so than the, you know, the buyer's willing to pay. And so if you, if you can't find somebody that's qualified to buy the business from you, you don't have a sale. I mean, it's just that simple. When I was at Sandler, we used to say, no, you know, no pain, no sale, no, you know, no buyer, no sale. It's kind of a similar concept. And so the successor or the buyer needs to be qualified. And there are a number of criteria that are super important. One is that they need to be able to run the company and at least maintain it. But ideally, you don't want to sell it to somebody that can just maintain it. You want them to be able to grow it. Um, most owners want their, their buyer to be able to maintain some of the cultural dynamics that they're so proud of that have been inherent in their um, growth of the business. And then, you know, one of the big ones is, can they afford it? So many people that own businesses today are depending deeply on at least a portion of the proceeds of the sale of their business to fund their, their retirement at the, you know, at the level that they have lived their life so far. And so if there isn't enough funding there, then there's not, they're not going to be a qualified successor. You can't afford to sell it to them. So those are some of the main things that show up. But I also think a qualified successor, you know, there's some of that emotional stuff as well as like, could I, 
could I, as the owner, see myself turning my company over to this person? Do they share the same core values that I have? They may be able to maintain my culture, but are they going to share the same core values? And will I be able to sleep every night knowing that this person now owns what I have worked 30, 40 years to build? Yeah, you know, Abby, I, I, but then, you know, again, and I'd like your comment on this as well. I mean, some people, you know, would, would say, who cares? You know, I cash, I, you know, I get my check, I cash out, I moved to Arizona or Florida and I'm good. Like, you know, why should I care if I'm selling my business? If the person buying it knows how to run it, will be able to grow it, will be able to sustain it. Um, tell me why you think that's important. Yeah. So what's interesting is I've, I've interviewed for this book that we're talking about, I interviewed 50 different CEOs and I've interviewed even more than that for a next book that I'm working on. But what's so interesting is that the, the thing that is most comfortable for people to talk about is the idea of cashing out. Mm. You know, every business owner wants to be, you know, wants to be comfortable in conversations about selling their business and feel like they've earned a big payday. But really, that is not the driver for the vast majority of business owners that have small and medium-sized businesses. The vast majority of them deeply, deeply want their want to take care of their employees. They want to maintain the culture. They want to leave a legacy because the business means something to them. And so, you know, if they're selling to somebody, uh, you know, whether it's a third party or a person that is not going to be able to do that, it creates a lot of emotional turmoil and heartburn for them. And so, but it's super hard to talk about that. You know, you don't sit around at a cocktail party and say, well, you know, it's really devastating to me to think about leaving this business to someone that's not going to care for my employees the way that I have cared for them. It's a whole lot more fun to talk about, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe the offer that I got from, you know, a third party buyer to invest, you know, to buy my business or to even invest to get 51% of my company. Sure, sure. You know, it's funny, you know, there are there are people in this world, there are uh, professionals in this world that are the people that are professional buyers and sellers of businesses, people that are brokers, they're in the M&A world, um, equity firms, private equity firms, they're used to buying up a business and then chopping it up and turning around and selling it off, maybe in whole or in pieces. To them, that's their business. Um, but if you're an existing business owner, that's not that's not your profession. You know, you're you spent your whole life making air filters or parts for the auto industry or what, you know, you know what I mean? You're not a professional buyer and seller of businesses. So when it comes time to sell your business, there is a lot more involved in that. It's, 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 you know, you, you put your heart and soul and blood and sweat and tears into this thing for maybe your whole life, maybe other generations before you. And I, I guess we can't discount that, which gets me to the, to your real ugly truth. You know, you say there's no qualified buyer is a, is an ugly truth uh, potentially. Um, your identity is deep in the business. That's a truth. Um, there is discomfort, there's stress and uncertainty in selling your business. That's a truth. But the real ugly truth, what is that, Abby? Yeah, so the real ugly truth is that this process is incredibly emotional. Right. Emotional from so many different angles. And, you know, the majority of owners, and, and this is, you know, generationally, this is changing, but the majority of owners that are in their 60s, 70s, and even 80s today are men. Mm -hmm. And our culture just has not given a lot of support for men to be in a position to talk about their emotions and to 
you know, really process through them in a, you know, in an outward way. And so, you know, they can be angry about things and they can be, you know, um, frustrated with things, but all the other emotions that come with this are, you know, are just not something that is comfortable to talk about. And yet they can derail the process faster than anything. And those emotions show up, whether you're selling to someone, you know, that third party buyer, any of those folks that you so eloquently described, they can show up there or they can show up whether you're selling, you know, even if you're selling to someone inside the company that you've known really well, maybe even their whole life, like your children, you know, your adult children or key employees that you hired and have been with you, you know, loyal, effective, talented employees that have been with you for 20, 30 years. It's just an emotional process because this is like, you know, another baby. It really is. You know, I, so I do a lot of speaking, right. And um, I speak to a lot of industry associations and I joke about like you're selling air filters or auto parts or tires, but these are like the industry associations I speak to. And uh, I got to tell you, I'd be like, when I speak to these groups, the audiences are predominantly white middle-aged men just that's just the way it is it's changing the demographics and and will change more over time but right now that is the demographic and these men i look out in the audience and they're all you know so many of them are in their 50s and 60s or whatever i i just I, i mean i can only imagine the you know the emotions they go through and you're right people don't talk about that because it's no one seems to have any empathy for for that demographic right now you know well, and it's not just the demographic. I don't think they have empathy for an owner that's selling their business. It's like, you know, what have you got? In fact, people quote this to me. I've got a, a quote in the next book. It's like, what have you got to complain about? You know, know. built a great company. You found a buyer that has the resources to pay you what you felt like it was worth or yeah. maybe even more. And now you're going to complain because, oh, it's emotional. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, I, I I couldn't agree with you more. And it is, uh, I mean, you mentioned in here that 70, there's a PwC survey, uh, 75% of business owners said that they profoundly regretted the decision to sell their business. And you know who I bet you regrets it even more are their spouses. <laughs> That's right. That's hilarious. You're exactly right. I mean, the, the, you know, it, it really is, it, it's just, you, know, you spend your whole life doing something and working 14 hours a day at your business and your heart and soul, and then it's gone. And uh, these are not people, at least most of them aren't just going to like go and, oh, great, I'll just nap all day or play golf. You know, they, <laughs> you know, they got to keep something to do and they just, they got to drive their, they got to drive their spouses next. Okay. Um, well, go ahead. I was just going to comment on that, that um, there's uh, one of the people that I interviewed for the next book, um, because it's very top of mind. He said, you know, the first couple of weeks that I was gone after, and he, you know, this was not a business sale, but it was a transition. And the first couple of weeks, he said, you know, it was crazy because I was my spouse around the house trying to, you know, tell her when to eat lunch and tell her what to do. And, and she, she didn't know what to do with me. It was driving her crazy. And I had to find something else. And, you know, that's why the, the next chapter stuff is so important to me. It is. And I guess that gets back to some of the advice that you give in your book, which I can just, I, I'd like you to expand a little bit is that you can't just be thinking about the sale of your business as part of this whole transaction is what are you going to do after the sale occurs? Right. 
And, That's right. and some people, you know, they've got a plan. They're like, yeah, I'm going to sell the business and I'm going to volunteer at this agency, or maybe I'm going to start a new business, or maybe I'm going to, you know, take up the guitar, but it's really important to think beyond the sale of your business, right? It is. And, you know, what's interesting to me is that when people talk about what they're going to do, they often do, you know, I'll ask an audience, um, what do you think? And, and, and I've asked thousands of people this question, because I do a lot of speaking engagements like you do as mm -hmm. well. And I'll get in front of the audience and I'll say, so what do you think the top three things are that people tell me or tell each other that they're going to do in requirement? And they get them every single time. There might be some, some uh, brief nuances, but they say, one, I'm going to um, travel a lot more. Right. Two, I'm going to spend more time with family. And three, I'm going to play a lot more golf. Right. They say tennis, but usually it's golf. And then occasionally I'll have somebody throw out volunteer more. And the challenge with all that, even the volunteer work is that without being very intentional, not just about the organization that you might want to volunteer for, but what specific work you want to do based on your favorite strengths to use, based on what you're passionate about, and based on the lifestyle priorities that matter most to you, you may choose an organization that you really love, but end up doing work that just is a drag for you. Yep. And now you're into some volunteer work and if you don't do it it's like well now what are you going to do so you're right you're right you know it's, it's funny i have um i have a friend of mine who who did sell his business and he said the exact i want to travel a lot more you know that's what he said see the world um it, it's very overrated abby <laughs> well i mean how much can you travel right Agreed. i mean they kind of want to come home I agreed. Agreed. And these are people, by the way, that are used to giving orders, that are used to other people following their orders, they're used to running a business. Then suddenly they're what they're traveling with, you know, on a group tour with a bunch of 70 year olds and like <laughs> following around. <laughs> now we're going to go see this historical monument and then go see this. And then we're going to go to this restaurant. Uh, the guy that I talked to, he was like, he said, I was, I was going nuts after five days, you know, doing this, you know, because I wanted something to do, something I can make an impact, something I get, you know, it just was very much out of their element. And again, we can't generalize. I mean, there are some people that will take to it. Great. You know, but of course, you know, sure. I, I guess the, I guess the point is, is that, and you know, when you make it in your book is that you just, you got to think beyond it and uh, you got to really look in the mirror and really say like, man, when this transaction is done, you know, what am I going to do? Say it's the Monday after the transaction, what am I going to do all day? You got to be prepared for that because, uh, you know, it sounds great, but it's, it's, you know, and the typical business owner takes so little vacation as it is that it's, it's just going to be a big change. Okay. Um, you also write about independence in the book, you know, about how critical you are in your business. Um, one of the reasons, so, so Abby, so like I, my company, I, I have 10 people in my company that I've been running it for about 25 years and my company is worth nothing. Like we have no assets. We're a service firm. We have no assets. We have no long-term agreements. We have no, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you know, I built up cash over the years and put that away in savings. That's the model that I followed. But I, the main reason why I can't sell my business ever, besides of having no real assets to speak for contracts, you know, guaranteed income is that if I go outside and get hit by a bus tomorrow, Abby, my business ends, do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and you make the point of asking yourself, can you take off a month or two? Um, you know, and, and what impact would that have on the business? So tell me a little bit about why you should be asking yourself that question. Yeah, so there are a 
couple of drivers of value and there are different companies out there. You know, I'm familiar with several of them that help owners understand what levers they can pull on to increase the value of their company. And owner independence is one of those important levers yeah. because someone's going to buy your business. They, they want to buy a business that can live on without you. Otherwise, they got to keep you around. And many businesses that sell, they, they come with an earnout, And so the owner expects that they're going to have to be around. But if your business requires you to be around that much, your earnout is going to have to include you transitioning that. And there are no other options or you, you really harm the value of the business or there is no value in the business like you talked about with, you know, with your business. Yeah. So I think it's even if the business is going to be run by, you know, a family member or key employee, you know, setting them up for success so that you can actually go and, you know, into that next chapter, which I hate the word retirement because I don't, I think it's outdated. Retirement is outdated, but that next chapter, you know, I think you, you've earned the right to be able to go enjoy that time. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right. And you know what, you know, that chapter and your advice there reminded me a lot of, um, um, the E-Myth. Did you ever read that book? Uh, yes, I love that book. Me too. I mean, I it's just one of those defining books on small businesses. It's probably 30, 40 years old now. But um, his whole, I remember one of the major examples he gave was like a McDonald's franchise and how, you know, there, you know, you, you, everything is documented. There's policies, there's procedures. I mean, there's like a book on how to cook a cheeseburger, you know, the right, <laughs> the, the way to do it. And that way, like if a manager leaves, you know, you know, the, the entity keeps going on. They could just insert another manager into the process, you know, and it's why there are business owners that own multiple you know, dozens of hundreds of McDonald's franchise because they can, they each operate on their own independently, you know, because they have a set of rules. That's value to me. You know, you don't need the it's owner there. Huge. That's exactly right. I mean, the, you know, you're, what you're talking about is all those internal systems that keep the company running and it doesn't really matter. I mean, yes, you need skills to be able to do that, but it's much easier to transition any role in the company if the infrastructure is in place to support the ongoing systems that make it successful. 100%. And that's what a buyer wants, right? I mean, they, they really do not want the owner hanging around too much longer. Um, they would really prefer to take it over. That's why they're they're buying it. Neither does the owner. Now, you say, you know, as we talked about earlier about having a plan, you know, you talked about that rolling five to 10 years, right? Let's assume that it's not rolling. Let's assume that you actually have a legit five or 10 year plan to sell your business. One of the key things when you sell a business, you point out is, is your people, you know, having the right leaders in your business, because somebody's going to buy your business. You know, there's hard, hard assets are important, but, and I, and I know it sounds corny, but it's all, it's really, really true. Your people are your biggest asset. And that's what a prospective buyer is going to look at. So you, you recommend beginning a development process for your, you know, for your employees to, you know, and you, you talk about cares, <laughs> which is competencies, attitude, results, experience, and skills. Tell me a little bit about developing your, your managers so that they are at their best for, you know, for when it comes time to build that value and sell your business. Yeah. So, you know, I like to talk about it as intentional development, because I think there's, there's a lot of development out there. You know, people talk about coaching, they talk about training, and those are certainly some good development methodologies, but the vast majority of good intentional development 
happens when you provide targeted learning experiences and broadening opportunities. And so, you know, to do that intentionally, you have to understand what are the competencies that I need to instill in the leadership team that I'm developing in these key roles. What are the results that are most important for our organization to get and for this individual to get in the role that they're in? You know, attitude matters. You know, if, if you have the right attitude, you can accomplish a whole lot more. And so I included that in there. Um, sometimes that's, you know, the least trainable or developable, you know, some, uh, you've got to work a little bit harder on that, but it is, it is, um, moldable, I should say. And then what experience, as I mentioned, do they need to have and skills to develop? So, um, for me, the best example, and I include this, this story in the book, but the best example of it is that I had a situation with the CEO of a bank and, he went regularly down to the Capitol and uh, lobbied the legislators. And so when we were talking about succession planning for him, he had two candidates that were on his leadership team that he thought either one of them might be the right fit to replace him at some point. And so we talked about, well, how are you developing them? And he said, well, I'm going to bring them. One of the examples was I'm going to bring them to Raleigh with me and they'll sit in and they'll watch what I do. And this whole idea that we learn by following or we learn by watching is really risky because first of all, people learn in very different ways. But second of all, it's like, who knows if they're gonna learn what you want them to learn? Sure. You know, instead what I recommended was that he do some very intentional approach to developing them in this particular area. And what we ended up having him do is he sat down with them two weeks in advance of the trip. And he said, these are the topics that I, I'm going to want to lobby the legislators about. He gave to each of them and said, I want you to go away and put together your lobby package, if you will. And then we'll get together about three days before the trip and you'll pitch to me, you'll lobby me. Mm. I'm mm. going to give you feedback and I'm going to coach you and I'm going to help you understand what you did really well and where I want you to adjust. And then we're going to get in the car and we're going to drive to the Capitol and we are going to sit down with those the legislators and you're going to each do one of the topics. And then we're going to debrief in the end. Well, forcing them to do the pre-work with intentionality, with a specific topic, get the coaching, go and actually do it, and get, then get feedback is so much more powerful than just jump in a car and let's go see what we can learn together. I love that approach as well. And, you know, I, I have to ask you, I mean, you're, I'm going to put you on the spot here because you wrote this book back in, or released it in 2017, long before um, anybody had ever heard the word coronavirus. Um, but now, you know, we're having this conversation in 2022. And listen, work from home and remote working has become such a huge impact on, on the workplace. How does that impact developing your leaders? Like what, have you had any thoughts on that? Like what, you know, what, you know, owners and CEOs should be doing in this sort of new hybrid remote working type world? Yeah, I think it's a it's a fascinating question. And so I'm glad because I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. I mean, you've talked to a lot of people and have a ton of experience in this. I'll share with you what I'm seeing. Okay. First of all, I, I don't think that it changes as much as we thought it would change. Um, in that one year or so where everyone was working from home, I say everyone, there were plenty of people that couldn't, you know, didn't have the luxury of working from home. But in that one, you know, in that one year when that was more uh, prevalent. Uh, I think that owners that were developing their people just had to adjust 
how they communicated and how they did the development, but the intentionality didn't change. Coaching, training was all still available. Getting broadening experiences and targeted learning opportunities was just available. We just did it differently. You know, we did it via Zoom instead of in person. So I don't see, I didn't see a whole lot of change through that. And now I think now that the pandemic has reached a new stage, because I'm not yet at the point where I say it's over, right. but now that it's reached a new stage, I think that the, you know, the methodology can become much more live and in person, which I think is for most people a better way of learning, but I don't think it gets in the way of effectiveness. So that would be my my thoughts. I'd be interested to hear yours. I do have some thoughts on that. So first of all, I can tell you, and we were talking about the different places that you know we speak or whatever. Everybody um, as soon as as soon as the associations I speak to could could get back to, you know, together face to face, everybody ran, jumped on planes and got back together. There's like this yeah. love of people, humans seeing each other face to face, shaking hands and hugging each other and talking to each other, whether they're wearing masks or not. Um, it is it, it is a core human thing. And I think that, you know, in this world that we're all that we're in right now, Working remotely is, um, it's a nice benefit to provide as long as it's balanced, like everything else in our lives. You know, you don't try not to drink too much whiskey, but you can have some whiskey, you know what I mean? Or, you know, don't eat too many, you know, Big Macs, but you can have a Big Mac once in a while. It's all about balance and moderation. And I think that there is a middle ground that can be reached that makes, you know, for a happy, productive workforce, but still gives them that development supervision they need. Um, and then the other thought that I also have is, I mean, there are now studies that are coming out, surveys are coming out, Abby, that's just saying that. And surprisingly or not, it's the younger generations who desire to be in the office more than even the older generations, especially the ones just starting out. I mean, you're trying to develop your future leaders and a 10 year span is a long time, you know? Um, it is just, uh, you know, there is something about working and being mentored and working with a team or a supervisor that you need to have that face-to-face -to, -face to do. I know my, my kids are in their 20s and uh, they both work at big companies and they, they prefer to go in the office and be near their bosses for that reason. So um, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say, I think you're absolutely right. And I think what's interesting is that as these young, as the younger generation is anxious to get in the office more, they, they recognize just how much of the non-intentional conversations happen when you're in the hallway or, you know, you come to the restroom or the cafeteria, or, you know, on your way to or from lunch or something like that, that, that they can't get when they're at home because there's no hallways, you know, with anybody else in it. And the, the, how quickly you can get responses if you can just pop your head into someone else's office makes a big difference. But I also think it's interesting that to your point about the balance, what I have also read is that while the younger people do want to be in the office, they don't want to be in the office every day, all right. day. Exactly. Flexibility and, and are demanding it. They are. And, you know, they, they've been demanding it for years, Abby. We just ignored them up until the pandemic, you know? I mean, they're smarter than us. Let's admit that. And they knew, you know, five, seven, eight years ago, they're like, hey, we can work remotely one or two days a week. The cloud is fine. It's reliable. There's plenty of applications. We It's, it's fine. And we were the ones that were saying, nah, you get your butt in the office now because that's the way we've always done it. And the pandemic proved that they've been right all along. So I think it's just important. And I guess... 
if again, if you are going to want to sell your company in five or 10 years, I do believe that the, you know, and you want to find the right buyer, that right buyer is going to want to buy a company that's got a great workplace attitude where they, there's happy employees working there. And part of that is giving them the flexibility of remote working while still combining it with that face-to-face -face mentorship that I think so many people need. Um, okay. You, in one of your chapters, you talk about um, implementing systems. And we kind of touched on this briefly earlier when we were talking about the e-myth, but you do go in, you do have thoughts about, you have to have a system for developing your strategies. You have to have a system for management, a system for marketing, a system for sales, you know? Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Let, let's, I'll pick marketing and sales, for example. What do you mean by a marketing and sales system that you should have in your company? Well, you know, I think the best businesses have systems and processes and tracking and measures for everything that is important to the results of the business. And so for me, results that are super important are, you know, profitability. And with that, of course, revenue and expense management and things like that. And so ensuring that you've got systems in place that are repeatable and reliable and can be standardized as you grow and you can build, you know, you can build training in those systems in so that you've got qualified people delivering in those systems. And when the systems, you know, either you outgrow the systems or the systems are no longer working for the, you know, re results that you're, you're going after, well, then you change the systems. Right. But I think, you know, the idea of everyone kind of doing things their own way is not what's going to attract a good you know, a good deal from a buyer. You need those systems and that stability and that standardization and um, reliability in order for a buyer to know that they're getting something that they can then replicate. Agreed. I mean, you can certainly assume that the buyer wants to inherit or, or, or take over a business that's got these processes in place. I found in my experience as well, so, you know, buyers are not buyers have their own issues like sellers. I mean, they're, they're not sure about the investments <laughs> that they're making. And um, when they, when they inherit a company that has good systems in place, I, I've seen a few times, Abby, where buyers are like, wow, these guys have a really good sales process. We need to, we need to mimic that sales process back in our business as well. Do you know what I mean? That's cool. <laughs> yes. I love that. So there is a lot, and that's, that is a value. I mean, that is where you're, you know, you have a prospective buyer in there and you're like, Hey, yeah, we do have a great process. So that, you know, I think I've just updated, up, updated my price 10%. Uh, if you want, if you want to take advantage of this process. So I, I think that's, you know, having those processes in place are really, really important. Um, and, and I'm, I'm glad that you said it. it has to do, like I said, for everything. And like you write, um, it's not just sales and marketing, but it's also with your people and management which is, which is really good. All right. So we have, you know, listen, I'm jumping around. I love this book so much. I mean, we could talk for ages, but I want to make sure we just get this into a certain period of time. So people don't, um, you know, get too tired of hearing you and I talk, but we talked earlier about, um, and we'll end on this about the, you know, what's next. Cause you go into detail about this near the end of your book. And, um, I do want to, I do want to have your final thoughts on, on, on what is next. You know, you sell your business, you should be thinking ahead. You say that you you need to you need to uncover sort of three big components. You know your you know what are your strengths? What are your passions? What are your lifestyle priorities? What is what does all that mean? Yeah. So um, 
that, that whole process to me is just so exciting to go through with an owner. And what I really recommend, I mean, it works for other executives as well, but you know, in the context of, of the book, it's targeted towards an owner. But what, what is important is that they start this process around six months or so before they actually leave, because they're going through a transition where on the one hand, they are moving towards something that right now is really unclear, mm. you know, the directional interest, but they're also letting go of something that they have held dear for a long time, which is their business. And so the three components that you were talking about are kind of the model that I've built around that. And the first component is what are your favorite strengths? And that's important is first of all, the favorite piece is really important. When someone is moving into their next chapter, they have earned the right not to have to do things that are strengths of theirs, but they hate doing. They want to, you know, they want to be investing in strengths that they really enjoy. So I always target the favorite strengths. And I've got some tools that I help them with, you know, to really surface up what are those favorite strengths because our culture also doesn't make it easy for people to talk about what their strengths are. So sometimes, you know, it gets a little bit tricky to, for um, owners to figure that out. And um, the second one that you talked about is uh, uncovering your passions. And at this point in your career, at this point in your life, it's really about doing things that bring you joy, doing things that motivate you and that you're passionate about. And I, I know that most people that I work with really sort of get, get, they struggle a little bit with this because they think about it in terms of, well, but Abby, I'm passionate about basketball, but I'm not going to play basketball. I'm not going to coach basketball. So why does, why is that relevant? And basketball itself is not necessarily the most relevant part of that process. But the reason that someone loves basketball is maybe because they love the strategy of the game. Mm. Maybe it's because they love the, um, the, the team environment, you know, and, and working with a group of people towards a common objective, winning the game. Maybe it's because they love the idea of, um, I don't know, I'm just making some things up now. And so what we're doing when we look at passions is we're really getting underneath what are the motivators? And when we can pull on those motivators, now we can say, all right, well, maybe you're not going to apply it to basketball, but what would you want to apply it to? And we start to generate some, uh, some interest and intrigue in different areas that might be a part of their next chapter. And then the third component you talked about was lifestyle priorities. And so, you know, those can be a wide range of things. Um, I have some uh, for example, some clients that have said, you know what, Abby, the only lifestyle priority that's really important to me right now is I've spent the last 40 years waking up at 530 in the morning, <laughs> early bird, but I would just love to be able to sleep until 630 because I haven't ha had the opportunity to do that. Other people, lifestyle priorities might be, I want to be able to take two months and travel to China without having to be committed to something else. Um, so it really varies uh, for, for many of them. It's, it's ancillary things that they want to bring into their life. But the, the combination of those three things starts to form a picture that then we can use to go out and explore 
what are the opportunities out there? Because one of the things that I find in working with owners is that they are super smart and experienced at the areas that they've spent their career working in. Right. But we often underestimate what opportunities are out there beyond what we already know. And when they start talking to people with their strengths, favorite strengths, and their um, passions, motivators in mind, a whole new world starts to open up for them. And that can be super exciting. And that's, that's where I like to help them get to. And that way, leaving behind doesn't feel as difficult because they're going to something that's super exciting for them. See, and that encapsulates what I like so much about this book. You know, there, there are books on exiting your business and succession planning that just talk about valuation or they talk about the nuts and bolts of the transaction itself or how to find a buyer for your business or how to prep your business for a sale. And, and they're, they're all good. Those are all useful books. This is a book about planning your succession, right? It's, it's, it's supposed to be read before we start digging into those details. And a big part of planning it is not only, you know, you know, making sure that we've got a, you know, a strategy for succession and making sure that we're heading in the right direction of, of having the different pieces in place. We talked about processes, um, but also what's happening after, you know, and, and that's part of the plan, you know, where are you going to be? And that all has to be thought about in advance, particularly if you're going to be looking ahead five to 10 years. Is, Abby, is there anything else that you want to say about the book before I let you go? Anything that I did not ask or uh, specific points? I know you want people to buy it, so let's not get too detailed, but um, I just want to give you the opportunity if there's anything else you wanted to add. Well, um, what I really like to add is a big thank you to you. You are a phenomenal interviewer and oh, you're able to glean insights from what you read, whether it's my book or anybody else's book, is exceptional. So thank you for pulling out so many really relevant themes. Um, the only other thing I would add is that a piece for owners to think about as they think about that next chapter is relevance. And I think relevance is, um, it's the most common word that I hear owners talk about is how am I going to stay relevant in my next chapter? Yeah, that is really a big issue. I appreciate that very much. I, it, it, it's great thoughts. The book, again, is called Straight Talk About Planning Your Succession. It's a primer for CEOs. Uh, I have been speaking with Abby Donnelly. You can get this book on Amazon and, of course, other places online. Uh, it is, it's a, um, a very insightful, but yet an easy read. You know, I, I had no problem making my way through it. So it's not some kind of academic tome that you have to, uh, you know, you wade through. It's, it's very well written. So, Abby, I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, great book. And uh, I look forward to your next book. What, you're working on it now? Yep, I am. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. And hold on for just a minute. And I'll uh, say goodbye to you personally once I stop this recording. But guys, thank you so much for watching and listening as well. You've been watching and listening to another episode of Biz Books. My name is Gene Marks. I'll be back shortly in another two weeks with another interview with another great author like Abby as well. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Take care.